Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. Continuing on with the next objection from my entire church, quoting Evangelism, page 615. We're told Christ is the pre-existence of existence, Son of God. In speaking of his pre-existence, Christ carries the mind back through dateless ages. He assures us that there never was a time when he was not in close fellowship with the eternal God. Amen. I do not understand how this statement is an objection. I would only think that the phrase never was a time, which is underlined is used to indicate that Christ always existed and there never was a point when he was begotten of his father. Well, let's just read again from the spirit of prophecy how the servant of the Lord comments. Here is how she explains how long Christ was in close fellowship with the father. From the Ministry of Healing, page 422, quote, He who had been in the presence of the father from the beginning, he who was the express image of the invisible God, was alone able to reveal the character of the deity to mankind. Christ was in the presence of the Father from the beginning. Question, what does beginning mean? It surely does not mean no beginning. As the first statement in the Holy Bible tells us. Nobody would for a minute imagine that Genesis 1-1 is a no beginning beginning. The statement we just read from evangelism tells us, Christ assures us that there never was a time when he was not in close fellowship with the eternal God. Well, that's true because she has just finished saying that Christ is the pre-existent, self-existent Son of God. Ever since Christ was begotten as the Son of God, he has always been in close fellowship with the Father. And she tells us that Christ is the Son of God in his pre-existence. That's before Bethlehem. So after clarifying for us that he is a son, she tells us ever since that event, ever since he was begotten, there never was a time when he was not in close fellowship with the eternal God. That statement is not telling us that he was never begotten. That statement is not telling us that he is not a son. Continuing, we read the statement earlier. We'll read it again. How long has Christ had existence? Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 919. We'll just read the section that concerns us, reading from right there in the middle of that statement. God has told us that he did do it, and we are to accept the word of God just as it reads. And although we may try to reason in regard to our Creator, how long He has had existence, where evil first entered into our world, and all these things, we may reason about them until we fall down faint and exhausted with the research when there is yet an infinity beyond. Christ here had an existence that is beyond our comprehension. It is so far back in the ages of eternity that it would be just pure conjecture to try and sit down and measure how long he has had existence. She's saying this because Christ in the past eons of time, in the ages of eternity, was begotten of his Father. And for us to try and comprehend and contemplate how long ago that happened is beyond our 
research. It is an infinity beyond us. But that does not deny the fact that that event actually took place, that he was begotten of his father. He was begotten so far back that the length of his existence is beyond our comprehension. She's saying this because his length of existence began when he was begotten of his father. His origin is when he was born of his father. And to try and figure out how long that was, how long ago that was, is beyond us. Now, she would not make those statements had Christ always existed and never was begotten. But she plainly tells us that elsewhere he was begotten, as we read in Signs of the Times, May 30, 1895, that he is not a son by creation, but he is a son begotten. And then she tells us to try and measure how long he has had existence is beyond us. Let us not try and do it. Let's look at another statement. Signs of the Times, May 3, 1899. Quote, Christ shows them that although they might reckon his life to be less than 50 years, yet his divine life could not be reckoned by human computation. The existence of Christ before his incarnation is not measured by figures. We cannot measure how long Christ has had existence. We cannot measure his divine life. That is beyond us. But these statements affirm to us the fact that he was indeed begotten. But that event took place long before we can ever imagine. It doesn't ever tell us that he never was begotten as a son, as some people try and use these statements. Continuing with another objection from Waitara Church regarding the deity and nature of Christ, quoting Patriarchs and Prophets, page 34. Christ, the Word, the only begotten of God, was one with the Eternal Father, one in nature, in character, and purpose, the only being that could enter into all the counsels and purposes of God. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. His goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Micah 5.2 And this statement is used, of course, to only prove what we have been saying all along, that Christ is the only begotten of God long before he ever came to this earth. That he's the only one who enters the counsels and purposes of God, and his goings forth, or his origin, or his family descent, is from old, from everlasting, or from the days of eternity, as the margin reads. His goings forth is so far back, we cannot comprehend it. But the fact that he had a goings forth cannot be denied by any honest Bible and Spirit of Prophecy believing Adventist. The next statement from the Signs of the Times, November 27, 1893, quote, The Jews had never before heard such words from human lips, and a convicting influence attended them, for it seemed the divinity flashed through humanity, as Jesus said, I and my Father are one. The words of Christ were full of deep meaning as he put forth the claim that he and the Father were of one substance possessing the same attributes. Amen. The Father and the Son are of the same substance. Again, that statement only proves what we have been saying all along, that Christ is of the same, or He and the Father are of one substance, because Christ inherited 
all things from his father. He was begotten from the very substance of his father, and therefore he possesses the same attributes. He is of the same substance as his father. Continuing on, we have a quote from the SDA Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 437. And the quote says, The world was made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. If Christ made all things, he existed before all things. The words spoken in regard to this are so decisive that no one need to be left in doubt. Christ was God essentially, and in the highest sense, he was with God from all eternity, God over all, blessed forevermore. Again, we can only say amen. How beautifully are the words that are spoken by the prophet are in describing that Christ is God. He is divine, essentially and in the highest sense. The prophet wrote this comment here to counter the argument that people were denying the pre-existence of Christ. Here she is stressing the fact that Christ is pre-existent in that he made all things, therefore he must have existed before making all things. He was with God from all eternity. And we shall look at that a little closer because some people misunderstand some of these terms that are being used by the prophet failing to look here a little and there a little. The next statement, we'll look at the answer in a minute. The next statement is the one we read earlier from Desire of Ages, but this one is quoted also from Volume 7 of the Bible Commentary. Same page. Silence fell upon the vast assembly. The name of God given to Moses to express the idea of the eternal presence had been claimed as his own by this Galilean rabbi. He had announced himself to be the self-existent one. He had been promised to Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from the days of eternity. And the two points here that are brought forth to uh, promote the idea that Christ is not begotten of the Father is that Christ was with God from all eternity and that Christ is the self-existent one. Now we'll just examine those two points in a minute. Let's have a look here. From all eternity. Exactly how was eternity understood in the time that Ellen White wrote these things? What was the understanding of her contemporaries? Let's read a quote from Jane Andrews in Sermons on the Sabbath and the Law, page 177. And he says, But is not eternity, as distinguished from time, unmeasured duration? And is not time, as distinguished from eternity, that part of duration which is measured by the Bible? So this is the understanding of the brethren at the time, as expressed here by Brother J. N. Andrews, that eternity is distinguished from time in that it is an unmeasured duration. Now, Sister White tells us very clearly that Christ was with God from all eternity. Now notice how she expresses it in The Faith I Live By, page, 400 and, uh, page 46. Quote, His divine life could not be reckoned by human computation. The existence of Christ before his incarnation is not measured by figures. And why is that? Because he is from all eternity, and eternity is an unmeasured duration. That in no way denies the fact that he was begotten in eternity, he was brought forth in eternity, and it was so far back that it cannot be reckoned by human computation or measured by figures, because it is in the realm of eternity. 
Therefore, it is very consistent and correct to say that Christ is from eternity, because eternity cannot be measured. But again, stressing the fact, these do not deny the fact that he was begotten, he was brought forth. Let's read again. We read the statement earlier from 7 BC, page 919. Quote, and although we may try to reason in regard to our Creator how long He has had existence, we may reason about them until we fall down faint and exhausted with the research when there is yet an infinity beyond. Again, we cannot reason in regard to how long He has had existence because His existence begins in eternity. And eternity cannot be measured by figures or human computation. These are the explanations the sister white and her contemporaries who understood what she wrote give us regarding eternity now let's the other point that was brought up is the fact that christ is self-existent and some people actually stumble over this point unnecessarily if christ was begotten of his father and he inherited all things from his father then it naturally follows that christ also inherited self-existence from his father christ was given self-existence he was given self-existent life let's read about it as we did in john chapter 5 and verse 26 you see christ was given life from his father by virtue of his divine birth many people object to this fact that christ was given life by his father but john 5 26 says very plainly for as the father hath life in himself so hath he given to the son to have life in himself so the Son has been given life, and He has been given the same kind of life that the Father has in Himself. That is self-existent life. That's self-existence. That is elsewhere termed, as we saw earlier, original, unborrowed, underived life. Notice again, in Testimonies, Volume 8, page 268, we are told, quote, God is the Father of Christ. Christ is the Son of God. To Christ has been given an exalted position. He has been made equal with the Father. All the counsels of God are opened to His Son. Now that's a statement made by the Spirit of Prophecy. This statement is clearly a non-Trinitarian statement. There is no person who believes in the Trinity who would agree to that statement. Now, this statement alone should prove to any honest individual that the spirit of prophecy, that Sister White was not a believer in this doctrine that is termed the Trinity, as many people imagine today. Christ, we're told here, has been given an exalted position. He has been made equal with his Father. He is the Son of God, and God is his Father. This is the plain Bible and spirit of prophecy testimony as we have read earlier in Proverbs chapter 8, verses 23 and 24. But let's, just so we don't uh, give enough witnesses, lest, lest we be accused of not giving enough witnesses, let's see, did Christ actually really receive life from his Father? Self-existence. Is it really the Father's life that is in his Son? Well, let's read here. In the Desire of Ages. We read this earlier, but let's read it again because the point is brought up again. Desire of Ages, page 21, quote, All things Christ received from God, but he took to give. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. 
through the sun it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. How so very plain. All things Christ received from God. Does that include life? Yes, it does. Because it is the Father's life that flows through His Son. That life is self-existent, original, unborrowed, underived life, and Christ has it by virtue of his divine birth. He has it by inheritance. Going on, the next uh, quote, the next slide from Waitara Church is a number of statements put together, but let's just read it and see what we can learn. We're told here, finally, between 1901 and 1905, during the years of the Kellogg crisis, Ellen White was able to describe the Trinity in these terms. Quote, eternal heavenly dignitaries, unquote, the, quote, three highest powers in heaven, uh, another quote, the three living persons of the heavenly trio, another quote, one in nature, character, and purpose, but not in person. And all the references are given there. Now, these are a number of statements that have been collected from here, there, and elsewhere, and have been cut and pasted together to make them read in a certain order, in a certain way. Now, half, these half of these statements are totally taken out of context, and we'll examine the context in a minute. This is the, this is the type of quoting that people use to today to defend certain cherished doctrines. This is sad to see when people have access to the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy to actually check these things out for themselves. But how many people actually go home and check these things out for themselves? We already looked at the eternal heavenly dignitaries. It's the Father, His Son, and their Spirit. They're also called the three highest powers in heaven. There's no problem there. The three living persons of the heavenly trio, we examined that earlier and we found that Sister White corrected that to read the, th the, living, the three living personalities of the heavenly trio. And we found who the third personality was, that it was the life of Christ. It was Christ divested of the personality of humanity and independent thereof, and it was his omnipresence. And then we're told that these three are one in nature, character, and purpose, but not in person. So... The quote from Waitara would have people believe, but let's just read it in context and see. When Sister White was talking about one in nature, character, and purpose, but not in person, was she talking about the heavenly trio? Is this correct quotation? If we examine the source, we will find that it's actually the Father and the Son, not a trio, that are one in nature, character, and purpose. And let's read the statements in their context. Great Controversy, page 493. Quote, Christ, the Word, the only begotten of God, was one with the Eternal Father, one in nature, in character, and in purpose, the only being in all the universe that could enter into all the counsels and purposes of God. So Sister White here is talking about the Father and the Son as being one in nature and character and purpose, not a trinity and not a trio. It is quite misleading to place those two statements side by side when she has not anywhere told us that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in nature, character, and purpose. Let's read the next one. Testimonies, Volume 8, page 269. Quote, They are one in purpose, in mind, in character, but not in person. It is thus that God and Christ are one. Again, she's talking about God and Christ, not a trio. Let us stay 
in the context of the statements that are written as they were written, not as how not how we would like them to read, and not as we would like them to be rearranged. Continuing, we're coming to a close now. Uh, this is another slide, another quote from Waitara Church in the presentation given, and they're quoting Testimonies, Volume uh, Volume Nine, Testimonies for the, for the Church, Volume Nine, page two hundred and twenty which tells us, from eternity, Christ has been man's redeemer. And the conclusion is, from eternity means no beginning. Well, that statement only says, from eternity, Christ has been man's redeemer. Amen to that. And we'll see a clarifying statement in a minute. The conclusion drawn that from eternity means no beginning is an assumption that lacks any evidence. But let's read Selected Messages, Book 1, page 250, in reply, and, how, and see how... Sister White clarifies to us the role of Christ as man's redeemer or mediator. Quote, God and Christ knew from the beginning of the apostasy of Satan and of the fall of Adam through the deceptive power of the apostate. The plan of salvation was designed to redeem the fallen race, to give them another trial. Christ was appointed to the office of mediator from the creation of God set up from everlasting to be our substitute and surety. So Christ was appointed to the office of mediator or redeemer from the creation of God. Now that event took place in eternity. That's why Sister White says from eternity, Christ has been man's redeemer. It tells us nothing about beginninglessness. The next, the next clause, she says, he was set up from everlasting. Now, if you recall, this is the same terminology that is used in Proverbs chapter 8, where Jesus says, I was set up from everlasting. Here we're told he was set up, he was appointed to the office of mediator from the creation of God. So that statement adequately clarifies what Sister White in the Spirit of Prophecy means. Now, concerning the conclusion... That from eternity means no beginning. Let us examine again the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy and see if these things are so. Reading from Review and Herald, April 5, 1906, paragraph 7. We read, The Lord Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, existed from eternity. A distinct person, yet one with the Father. This was no robbery of God. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of His way. He declares, before his works of old, I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there, when he set a compass upon the face of the depth. Again, Sister White here is using the language of Proverbs chapter 8. She's actually quoting that passage and clearly identifies Christ as the speaker in that passage. Now, the claim is made that eternity means no beginning. But if we read there, Christ actually says that the Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting or from eternity and then he clarifies what that means by another statement, from the beginning or ever the earth was. So being set up from everlasting is also from the beginning. 
or ever the earth was or before the earth was. There are three anchor points here that are ident that are synonymous with each other in this clause from everlasting from the beginning before the earth was all these three are the same thing and that just basically tells us that christ was set up in the days of eternity and he refers to that as a beginning when he was brought forth from his father that's very plain to anyone who reads that statement carefully continuing another final uh, slide from Waitara Church where we are told in this section where we are told in evangelism page 615 that he is the eternal self-existent son and the conclusion uh, the assumed conclusion that is drawn there is self-existent means uncreated underived and therefore of the same na nature as the father well amen to all these statements Jesus is indeed the eternal self-existent Son. He is self-existent because He is the Son of the self-existent God. He was not created, He did not derive it, and He has the same nature as the Father, self-existent nature. He has it by virtue of His birth. He was begotten in the Father's image and likeness. So amen to that statement. There is no problem there whatsoever. All the statements can harmonize together. Now we come to another section where uh, Waitara Church is commenting on some of the studies that have been presented, studies for restitution. And the quote here, it tells us that studies for restitution under the deceptive title, the Holy Spirit, a distinct personality, makes the following attack. And he's quoting here a study which says, Dear friends, the devil who caused all the suffering of Jesus, who tortured and crucified him, then sets up a straw man known as God the Holy Spirit, and he that was responsible for the suffering and death of the Son of God receives the praise, worship, and honor. What a hideous and blasphemous doctrine. Now, the presenter from Waitara Church continues, The only thing hideous is this gross misrepresentation of the Holy Spirit, which actually claims that Satan is responsible for the concept of the Holy Spirit being a person of the Godhead. There are grave warnings in Scripture concerning the rejection of the Holy Spirit, and this type of claim comes close to the unpardonable sin of rejecting the Holy Spirit. Well, there are a number of claims made here. Let us just examine them quickly as we continue. God, the Holy Spirit, is an invention of man inspired by the devil. Because you will never find God, the Holy Spirit, in inspired writings, whether that be the Bible or whether that be the spirit of prophecy. This God, known as God the Holy Spirit, is foreign to inspiration. Heaven has told us nothing of such a God. Who then would be interested in creating this God? Well, there's only one other being in the universe who is interested in worship and interested in adoration. That's a being who is not worthy of worship and adoration, that is Lucifer, a created being who has fallen. Now, let's just ask ourselves the question, is Lucifer interested in pretending to be a divine being? Is Satan pretending to be a divine being at all? And if so, what does he appear as, or what is his disguise? Well, let's read together from Early Writings, page 54 to 56, a statement that is so self-explanatory that no comment would be needed. 
Quote, I saw a throne, and on it sat the Father and the Son. I saw two companies, one bowed down before the throne, deeply interested, while the other stood uninterested and careless. I saw the Father rise from the throne, and in a flaming chariot go into the Holy of Holies within the veil and sit down. Then a cloudy chariot, with wheels like flaming fire, surrounded by angels, came to where Jesus was. He stepped into the chariot and was borne to the holiest, where the Father sat. I turned to look at the company who were still bowed before the throne. They did not know that Jesus had left it. Satan appeared to be by the throne, trying to carry on the work of God. I saw them look up to the throne and pray, Father, give us thy spirit. Satan would then breathe upon them an unholy influence. In it there was light and much power but no sweet love, joy, and peace. Satan's object was to keep them deceived and to draw back and deceive God's children. End quote. So the Spirit of Prophecy tells us that the Father and the Son sit upon a throne, and when Jesus moved, Satan took the place of Jesus, and when the people prayed for the Holy Spirit, Satan answered that prayer and breathed on them his unholy influence. Is Satan pretending to carry on the work of God? Is Satan pretending to be a third divine being when the Spirit of Prophecy lists only two? I think anyone who has any degree of honesty will be able to see clearly in the statement we have just read. Continuing on, Waitara Church quotes Hebrews twelve thirty one, and it says, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And that reference does not look like it's a correct reference. I believe the reference is in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 31. Not Hebrews. So Hebrews is a wrong reference. It's actually Matthew. And the assumption or the conclusion is made, Dear friend, can we risk losing eternal life by rejecting the person of the Holy Spirit? Now this is, again, uh, a misunderstanding. Nobody is rejecting the person of the Holy Spirit. We are rejecting the concept, the invented concept of a God, the Holy Spirit. We reject it because the Bible and the spirit of prophecy do not tell us about such a God. But that does not mean that we reject the Holy Spirit. If anybody has been listening throughout the presentation, we'll see we perfectly well believe in the Holy Spirit of God and the Spirit of His Son. It's the Spirit of Christ. It is their very own life, their very own essence. You see, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with rejecting the person of the Holy Spirit as God the Holy Spirit. There are two unconnected things. Let's look at it carefully. Because people get scared when these things are quoted to them because they believe them when it's a blatant misrepresentation. The unpardonable sin has nothing to do with rejecting the person of the Holy Spirit. The unpardonable uh, sin is actually not rejecting someone at all. What is the unpardonable sin? What is the rejecting that is needed to be done in order to commit the unpardonable sin? Is it the rejection of a God, the Holy Spirit, is it a rejection of a person? Is it rejecting someone? Well, let's read it in 5 
Bible Commentary, Volume 5, page 1093, quote, The sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit does not lie in any sudden word or deed. It is the firm, determined resistance of truth and evidence. It's the resistance of truth and evidence that is the unpardonable sin. And if you have been listening at all throughout this presentation, you have heard truth given upon evidence. It's the rejection of this truth in light of the evidence given that will place you in a position of rejecting or committing the unpardonable sin. It is not the rejection of the person of the Holy Spirit, as some people imagine. It is not the rejection of God, the Holy Spirit, as some people imagine. Continuing on, the faith I live by, page 58, quote, No one need to look upon the sin against the Holy Ghost as something mysterious and indefinable. The sin against the Holy Ghost is the sin of persistent refusal to respond to the invitation to repent. Again, very clearly we're told it is refusing to repent that is the sin against the Holy Spirit. Friends, we need to understand that in rejecting truth and evidence, we place ourselves in a position close to the unpardonable sin. Now, this is very important that I'd love for you to contemplate in your mind because you have seen and read with your own eyes truth based upon evidence. And the evidence is found in the Bible and in the spirit of prophecy. So beware from those who try and scare you that if you believe the truth, you will actually commit the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is as far from reality as anything could be. Continuing, Waitara Church then makes this very, very interesting claim that does not cease to amaze me. How can someone stand up the front as a speaker representing the position of the church and make such claims as these? I honestly fail to understand. Let us read it. In the 7th to 9th centuries, thousands converted from Arianism to Islam under the combined pressure of military compulsion and doctrinal similarity. Arianism might well be a first step on the road to Islamic conversion in 2006. Now, the implication is made very strongly that in believing the truth about God, which has been labeled by this derogatory label of Arianism to scare people away, that's the label that is given to those people who believe that God is a father who has a son. Now, that label Arianism is said here to be the first step on the road to Islamic conversion in 2006. Now, this is just a sad statement to make. But anyway, continuing down the bottom, this will lead to a rejection of the salvational value of Christ's sacrifice and the loss of eternal life. What a scary thought. I can just imagine people getting scared and being rather mortified of accepting the truth lest they become Muslims. Now, Islam has nothing to do with the truth about God. Now, we'll just look at some of the things. I don't even know that we have to do this, but we'll do this nonetheless because the claim is made and people actually believe these things because they hear them from the front. What do the Muslims believe about God's only begotten Son? Here is a quote from the Quran, and this is from Surah Al-Ikhlas. And it says basically this, reading down the bottom, Say, He is Allah. 
the one and only, Allah the eternal absolute, he begetteth not, nor is he begotten, and there is none like unto him. So the Muslims believe that God begetteth not. We believe, according to the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, that God begetteth, and he has begotten a son, and he so loved us that he gave us his only begotten son. So that's a diametrical opposition to the truth. The other people, like the Muslims, who actually believe that God begetteth not, are those people who believe in the Trinity. Now, I'm not for a minute here suggesting that they and the Muslims have the same belief. But if anything, the similarity in beliefs is not between us and the Muslims. It is the other way around. We believe God does beget a son. The Muslims do not. And the Trinitarians do not. Continuing. What do the Muslims believe about God's Holy Spirit? This is a quote from Encyclopedia uh, on the Internet. It says, Islam considers the Holy Spirit to be another name for the Archangel Gabriel. In Surah 2.97, the Quran states that Gabriel delivered the word of Allah to the Prophet Muhammad. And in Surah 16.102, Gabriel is specifically called the Holy Spirit. All Quranic references to the Holy Spirit refer, therefore, to this angel. Now, if anybody has read our material or has been listening in this presentation, you will see very, very plainly how poor this claim stands in that there is similarity between Islam and the truth about God. The Muslims believe the Holy Spirit to be a different being to God. Namely, they believe he is the created angel Gabriel. We believe that the Holy Spirit is the very life and essence of God, the very divinity of our master, as the spirit of prophecy has told us. There is absolutely no truth in these claims that are given. Now, the question that we need to ask ourselves, the question that you need to ask yourself as you have listened to truth and evidence, the question is, what will you do in light of these things? Let's read a statement from Testimonies, Volume 3, page 255. Quote, I have been shown that the greatest reason why the people of God are now found in this state of spiritual blindness is that they will not receive correction. Let's just pause here for a minute. Are God's people today found in a state of spiritual blindness? Have you been going to church week after week? And the best description that you can give to the things that you are seeing is spiritual blindness. Well, we're given the reason why this state is present. We're given here the reason why this condition is as it is. The reason is they will not receive correction. Continuing, those who desire to doubt will have plenty of room. God does not propose to remove all occasion for unbelief. He gives evidence which must be carefully investigated with a humble mind and a teachable spirit, and all should decide from the weight of evidence. Well, you have been given here, brothers and sisters, a weight of evidence, and it is your duty to carefully investigate it with a humble mind and a teachable spirit, and make your decision based on the weight of evidence. There is plenty of weight of evidence to make the correct decision, but those who desire to doubt will have plenty of room, because God does not propose to remove all occasion for unbelief. If you want to continue in unbelief, you have every perfect right to do so. But if you want truth, there is plenty of evidence for you to weigh up the evidence and find and accept the truth.
Let's read another statement from Testimonies, Volume 5, page 675. Quote, Satan has ability to suggest doubts and to devise objections to the pointed testimony that God sends, and many think it a virtue, a mark of intelligence in them, to be unbelieving and to question and quibble. God gives sufficient evidence for the candid mind to believe, but he who turns from the weight of evidence, because there are a few things which he cannot make plain to his finite understanding, will be left in the cold, chilling atmosphere of unbelief and questioning doubts, and will make shipwreck of faith. That's a self-explanatory statement. My friends listening what will you do? We have been told that the sin against the Holy Spirit is the sin of persistent refusal to respond to the invitation to repent. If you have been listening at all today, you have seen a weight of evidence that perhaps has presented to you something that you did not know. And you have seen that your position was in error. While you were ignorant of this matter, God does not hold you responsible. But now that evidence and truth has been given, now that light has been shining clearly on this matter, you can no longer plead ignorance. God requires of you to accept the invitation to repent and to accept his truth, to respond to the invitation to repent. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. It is my sincere and humble prayer that you will indeed heed the invitation of heaven and examine carefully the weight of evidence and repent and accept the invitation of mercy. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.